when I went up the escalator to this oil company and, and a little, I saw a little girl that had talked on the phone and she stood up, saw me coming. I was wearing a black t-shirt and, and I had a trench coat on over, over the shotgun and, a, you know, blue jeans and probably looked like a woolly booger. And, and she saw me come and she stood up and started yelling and you can't go in there. You can't. And I just picked her up and I put her back in her seat and I didn't want to hurt the little girl. And I kicked open the doors to the boardroom and, uh, I, uh, there were a bunch of guys in suits in there, and I picked out the, the CFO that had written me the hot check, and I smiled real big, and they stopped smiling when they saw my shotgun, and, and I went over and stuck that shotgun in the guy's mouth and, and jacked him up against the wall, and I said, now, fellas, don't you all think it'd be a good idea to go get me my money? And they thought that was a real good idea. It looked like roadrunners leaving this poor guy. They, they, they left the room as fast. They knocked over chairs and everything getting out of the room. And I had the guy up against the wall. So I made him sit down and I said, now we're just going to wait for my money. And, you know, it was about 30 minutes later, little guy came up the stairs waving a little white flag and, and had a paper bag with my money in it. That's all I went for. I didn't go to kill anybody. I didn't, you know, I just wanted my money. <laughs> well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, that... Thar was the voice of Mr. Bob S. that you heard at the beginning of this episode, and you will be hearing much, much more from Bob S. in just a moment. But first things first, this episode, the one that you have your ears tuned into right now, is brought to you by Janice, Rachel. And Joan, you know what they did? Janice, Rachel, and Joan all went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Janice, Rachel, and Joan, for your generosity. This episode, the Bob S. episode, is for you. And you know, it's been a while since I said this, and I just want to reiterate. Please be assured that any donation that you give goes directly to the expenses related to the podcast, such as various software subscriptions, hardware associated with the show. I will never, quote, profit, unquote, from the podcast. I'm just trying to give away what was so freely given to me. And my sponsor, I can tell you, folks, 
keeps me very straight on that one. All right, so I, ladies and gentlemen, will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. All right, so I want to tell you that, um, well, you know that we had a Sober Speak Live event here just a few weeks ago. Well, guess what? It went so well that we, you guessed it, are having another one. Sober Speak Live is going to be happening again. Mark your calendars. We got a we got quite a bit of time, but I just want you all to know it is going to be on December 6th and it will be a shindig with Miss Brenda J. If you have not heard Miss Brenda J, please go back and listen to episodes number 50 and 90. That's episodes number 50 and 90. Doesn't matter if you're coming to the uh, Sober Speak Live event or not. You will do yourself a favor by going and listening to those podcasts. We'll have more on that as the weeks and months unfold. But I just wanted to let uh, everyone know, because some of you are asking me if I could have given a little bit more notice last time. But nonetheless, uh, Sober Speak Live again is going to be on December 6th, Friday at 7 p.m. Once again at the Grace Avenue United Methodist Church in Frisco, Texas. All right. I want to tell you about... Something that happened to me last week, I, I don't know if it's happened to me, I want to tell you about an experience I had. So I was traveling for work, and I was getting on a plane, and I was coming back, or I was you know, about to get on a plane, and I was uh, just went over to sit down to finish up a little sandwich I had, because it's been a long, long day, and um, I was just looking out the window there in the terminal, and I heard behind me somebody talking in a rather loud voice and they were saying words and and I don't want to say the words they were they were sexual in nature I'll put it that way and they were right behind me and the words were being slurred and I turned around and I looked back behind me and there was a gentleman there and he was obviously just blasted out of his mind I don't mean just a little bit drunk uh, a little bit tipsy I mean he was wasted and so I said, uh, no big deal. You know, I mean, just, you know, the guy's going to be, he's going to be. And, you know, hey, I've been in those sorts of situations before. And but for the grace of God, there go I. Right. But as I continued to eat my meal, well, his voice got a little more elevated and he started to say these words that were uh, not for families. And. I looked over to the side of me and there was a family sitting there right next to me. It was two parents and they had two children. And I thought to myself, oh no, what do I do? What's the right thing to do here? So I just kind of continued eating for a while and I thought, okay, hopefully he's just going to kind of settle down. But unfortunately, he continued on. And so after he did it a couple more times, I got up and I said, hey, listen, listen, I can tell you've been drinking and, you know, I don't know what else you may or may not be taking. And and I'm okay with all that, right? All I want to say is, is if you could just keep your voice down and watch your language, because you have two little kids that are sitting here within earshot of everything that you're saying. And so the guy in a 
very slurred voice and I could do the impert. Well, let me just get, it was kind of like, do you work here? I said, no, no, sir. I don't work here. He said, well, thank you for your information is what he said. He didn't even say comments or whatever the case may be. He was basically telling me to bug off. Uh, and I said, well, listen, um, I, I, I just want to know, are you going to keep your voice down and watch your language? And he got up out of his seat and he rushed out toward me and he bowed his chest and he was ready to have a big old fight. And I said to him, I said, listen, man, I am not going to get into a, a skirmish with you, uh, you're in a blackout and you're not even going to remember this to, tomorrow. And his, and his buddies who were with him, he had two buddies who were with him and they were not, they seemed just fine. If they were, if they had been drinking, they, they showed no effects of it. And they, they got up and they pulled him back. And, and I just said, and I went over to the agents at the counter for the airline. And I said, listen, man, this guy is blasted. If you let him on your plane, it's your issue. But I just want him to be quiet because of the kids that are over here. And to make a long story short, they went over there and they handled the whole thing. And uh, I don't know if the guy ever got back or if he didn't. But I know he was much more behaved after um, I walked away. And... Um, but the reason I bring up that whole incident is to say this. When I went into the meeting that I was going into on Saturday, my friend Terry was chairing the meeting. And my friend Terry had brought up the subject of a combination of things. Number one, resentment, resentment and how it couples with or pairs up with meditation. And I can tell you, I was a little shaken by it. It was an uncomfortable experience, but I got on the plane. And as I was on the plane coming back home, I started praying for that man. And I started thinking to myself, you know, how many times, John M., have you, were you in a situation to where you don't even remember it? And how many people did you make uncomfortable talking to myself here. You know, how many, how many times was I in a situation where I made people completely uncomfortable? I mean, I can remember being in situations where I just went and knocked people with my chest just for the heck of it, just, just walking by them. I can remember situations where I would take tables and just flip them over. I can remember all kinds of vandalism I would do. I can remember, uh, oh gosh, and you know, and most of you out there will be able to relate to this in spades, right? Um, there were just so many times where I made people completely uncomfortable and I had to remember there, but for the grace of God, go I. All right, Bob S., on this episode, we're going to have two of his episodes back to back. In this episode, Bob is going to address several things that talk about his time as a linebacker for the University of Texas. He's going to talk about his visit with President LBJ Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, he's going to talk about PTSD, his experience with that. He's going to talk about his experience uh, or his encounter, I should say, with a SWAT team that was not real happy to see him. Going to talk about the time he shot up a police station. Yes, 
a time he shot up a police station. Yes, he's going to do all that and so much more. So buckle up your seatbelts. It is going to be a wild ride. Once again, folks, if you haven't joined the super, super secret Facebook group and you'd like to, I'm at uh, just send me your secret. You, just send me your email associated with your Facebook to John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. If you haven't followed me on the Instagram, the Instagram, I'm at at SoberSpeak, all one word. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Bob S. And we'll have listener feedback at the end of this. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Mr. Bob S. And uh, Mr. Bob, why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself and give your sobriety date if you so wish, sir. I always wish. I'm Bob S. I'm a grateful alcoholic and I've been sober since the 17th of December, 1984, uh, by the grace of God and the and, uh, Houston SWAT team. <laughs> the Houston SWAT team. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So let me go ahead and tell you. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to that uh, eventually here within your uh, within this uh, episode. Uh, so Bob is sitting here because I had a gentleman named Mr. Dave R from the Georgetown Group who was over here with me one day, and he actually uh, recorded an episode, and he highly recommended that I get Mr. Bob S. on. And uh, I have met Bob throughout the years, uh, probably just a couple, three times. I believe that we met at the Georgetown group, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, so Bob and I have been going back and forth for a while, and we were finally able to get him over here for a recording. Uh, So thank you, Mr. Dave R. All right. So the first thing I want to start out with, Mr. Bob, is I want to know about your service in the Marine Corps. So uh, just talk to me a little bit about that. Uh, You know, how long were you in the Marine Corps? What does it mean to you? How does it work into your alcoholism? And just take it from there. Well, it goes back to start at high school. uh, That's where I started my heaviest drinking as a freshman in high school. And uh, uh, I was about half a juvenile delinquent. And my my parents uh, sent me to a uh, Catholic Seminary in San Antonio for about uh, for my first year of high school, and it took me about four months to get kicked out of there. And then I went to uh, Jesuit in Dallas, and and it took me about two years to get kicked out of there. And then I went to Thomas Jefferson, and it and uh, graduated from there, and uh, ran track fast enough and played football good enough. I got a football scholarship to the University of Texas. Oh, really? And, uh, so you played football at the University I, of Texas. I what played, position were you? I was an outside linebacker. I, I, I used to run consistent nine eight nine nine hundreds when that was fast. Really? And, yeah. And I, I ran on TJ Sprint Relay Team and set a national high school record. And, and that's, you know, that's part of what I was, was fast. I could, the things I was best at were fighting, drinking, and chasing women. <laughs> so... <laughs> And uh, looks like you were born for Alcoholics oh, Anonymous. I was born for Alcoholics Anonymous, and and the um, uh, the the scholarship to Texas. I I can truthfully say I don't know where any of my freshman English classes were, but I knew where Schultz's Beer Garden was, and <laughs> and I uh, I used to build swimming pools during the summer, and and there was a 
a Marine. He was an old guy. He was probably 23 or 24. And he was and in the swimming pool. The guy that owned the company would bring a couple of cases of beer out every day uh, about two o'clock in the afternoon because we knock off about then and, and we start real early before the crack of dawn. And and uh, I watched this guy. He amazed me. He uh, he could blow all his air out and and then chug a beer in about a second and a half to two seconds, just as fast as you could pour it out. <laughs> in fact, he almost stuck it out. So I practiced and I practiced and I practiced and I, I blew all my air out and then I blew a little bit more out. And I got it to where I could down a can of beer in a second and a half to two seconds and and I could drink a whole pitcher. Uh, which will hold five mugs, I could drink a whole pitcher in about 10 seconds and just one mug after the other. So that was my claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, didn't, didn't, uh, played good football on the, on the freshman team at Texas, but uh, did not make my grade. So they suggested my scholarship was suspended. And so then I went to North Texas, and North Texas was a party school. And played football and ran track there and it took me a whole year to get kicked out of north texas and and uh and so i went to work on the freight docks and just figured i'd do that for a while and uh, uh about uh three months after i uh, got suspended from north texas uh I got a, uh, a little notice in the mail that said if uh, nobody else wanted me, Uncle Sam did. So please come take my draft physical. And uh, this was in 1964. And uh, went and took my draft physical. And the lady at the draft board said that uh, I would get my induction notice within two weeks. And so instead of getting drafted in the Army for two years, I went across the street and joined the Marine Corps for four years. Uh-huh. So... Uh, uh, I'd had an uncle when I was little that uh, was in test unit one in the Marine Corps. It was a combination of amphib Marines, paramarines, Marine Pathfinders, Marine Raiders. And, uh, and if I had to go into the service, that was the only thing I wanted in. And, uh, so I, uh, I went to the Marine Corps recruiting unit in downtown Dallas and this major in there told me that that was now called force recon. And, and, uh, only about one out of every hundred Marines that tried for that ever got in there. So he said, if you make it in there, you come back and see me when you come back to Dallas and I'll take you to dinner. And I did. And he did. So it worked out just fine. (laughs) So I noticed that you said several times already, I got kicked out of, I got kicked out. That's what I was best at was getting kicked out. of. (laughs) I got kicked out for drinking and fighting mostly. (laughs) Mm-hmm. All right. So, so here you are. It sounds like most of your heavy drinking started as a freshman in high school. Uh, and then you got sober in 1984. So how old were you when you got sober? Uh, about 41 years old. Wow. Okay. So there's a, so there's a long oh, I time. Had a long period of, uh, I, I, I ran rabid for a long time. Okay. So let's talk about those years then in between. So what happened from, you know, basically from when you were a freshman or actually, I guess when you were uh, in college, getting out of college up to you were 41, kind of take me through some highlights or lowlights, you know, if you will. The, uh, it was, I was a sophomore when I 
finally left North Texas and got that draft physical and, and joined the Marine Corps. And uh, they put me into a communications battalion because I qualified to be a cryptographer and a bunch of other stuff. What and, is a cryptographer? Uh, right writes and rewrites and decodes codes oh, okay. i mean uh you know you spend your you spend all your time on machines doing code work and and uh and i did not like that i did not want to do that it's not what i joined the marine corps for i i uh so it, i was working in a message center at seventh com battalion in in california and uh i'd been doing that for about three months and this message came across uh lines that said uh, that force recon was taking volunteers and uh, you had to volunteer for jj which was junior jump classes and you had to go to to uh, force recon for a week uh, and all the people that made it through that would have a chance of getting in the company and and i went to see the first sergeant and the first sergeant said no well uh, we can't send you over there we, we've never sent anybody over there it didn't come back all broken up and nobody's ever made it and uh, so I said, uh, well, it, you know, can I talk to the major? And he said, yeah, but the major's out of town. But if you get the major to sign off on this, I'll send you. So uh, about two nights later, I had uh, assistant duty NCO. And and my dad was a doctor, and I could forge his signature better than he, he could not tell when I had forged his signature. He could not. And I'd practice that a lot. I'd, I wrote prescriptions for every friend I had. <laughs> And uh, so I went in and uh, put OK on the, the orders and, and uh, signed the major's name. And <laughs> took it by the first sergeant's desk. I didn't have anything to lose. And took it by the first sergeant's desk the next morning. And and uh, first sergeant said, well, he's out of town. How would you get him to sign this? I said, oh, well, he came back into the office for just a little bit last night. And we talked, and I got him to sign. OK, OK. I'll they see. bought it? I'll, he bought it. He bought it hook, line, and sinker. And I <laughs> And he sent me over. So they sent me over the next week to uh, to Fort Recon in, in California, and uh, there were 252 of us in our in my JJ class, and uh, four of us made it through. Uh, it was they call it Hell Week, and it was it was a lot more than that. I mean, you start up, start off uh, with long runs on the beach in uh, full utilities and full gear. Uh, early in the morning then you go to breakfast then you shower and re clean up and put on new shoes and new gear and then you go do the same thing again and it was it was physical exercise and mental exercise all day every day and and the worst part of it was they kept yelling at you well you can quit anytime y'all want you can quit you can go home and go back to your unit and uh, this seemed like a real good idea to most of those guys after we did all the stuff we did but, i bet uh, Force Recon troops, uh, not many people outside of Marine Corps know anything about them, but we work with Navy SEAL teams a lot. Uh, Navy SEALs get a lot more of the in-the-water work, uh, and we got more inland work. But the first uh, first two SEALs and the first Force Recon Marine were all killed on the same operation in Vietnam together. So so I went to uh, – so I, I, I made it through, made it through a week of that. Four out of how many again? Four of us out of 252. Wow. And as we were standing in the major's office and he's yelling at us, trying to, to uh, still trying to get us to, to not go in, uh, 
one of the guy, one of the four of us that made it, uh, caved in. He passed out and caved in nose first on the ground, and he'd had a a weakness in his skull, and his brain had swollen through his skull, so he got surveyed out of the Marine Corps. So only three of us made it in. Wow. So anyway, we uh, then we went back to my I went back to uh, Seventh Com and waited orders, and when I got back there, I had uh, I had a cracked hand, a cracked wrist. Uh, cracked two cracked ribs, uh, and I probably spent two or three days in sick bay because it took that long to recover from all the stuff we did. We, we did uh, we did parachute landing falls out of the back of six bays, going thirty five miles an hour down the beach, and and uh, did you know everything that everything that you were going to go through in ranger school and jump school, we got to go through in one week. Uh, anyway, I got so that that got me into force recon and. I went to uh, I went to jump school first, scuba school, uh, ranger school, amphib recon school, uh, SEER school, survival school in Panama Canal Zone, uh, two different communication schools. Uh, when I got back from ranger school, uh, people were all running around our area yelling and screaming, and they I, I asked one of them what you know what was going on. He said, "We're going to war. We're going to war." And I thought, oh crap! You know, I didn't sign up for this. What do you <laughs> no. mean we're going to war? And uh, you know, so we had we had orders to Vietnam, and we went over uh, the sunny Southeast Asia with RLT seven in May of nineteen sixty five, and um, we worked in little four man teams. Uh, we worked all the way into North Vietnam a, a bunch, uh, and uh, did. Lots of stuff that uh, uh, was very exciting. <laughs> yeah, but so okay, so you're you you're you have this military training going on, and uh, how did how did the drinking work into this? You know, I've always heard that military is, is made for drinking. Everybody in my company drank just like I did. Most of them weren't as good as I was, but, <laughs> but they all drank just like. And we, the the weekend that I got back from uh, Ranger School, and we all my whole platoon went down to uh, the beach, and and we uh, we drank. I, I would I would keep drinking till I mean I would drink everybody's everything that was left. You know I didn't want to waste anything, and and I. Because I heard you could, you know, go to hell for wasting alcohol, just like you go to hell for stealing. And I, <laughs> I, you know, I could, I could help that. So I, you know, I kept that saved my life later on. But uh, we, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't drink a bunch in Vietnam uh, unless we had come in from uh, a patrol or something like that. And most of the guys, you know, a lot of people uh, developed their drug habits over there. We didn't. We uh, there were only uh, there were 152 of us in that company, uh, and we had to have each other's backs. and And we weren't doing drugs. I don't know about the rest of the you know people how they got it or how they started it, but we couldn't afford to. So it was just mostly a big alcohol deal any kind we could. How many years were you in the Marine Corps? Five years. Okay, so after the five years, so what happened after the five years? Where'd you go from there? Uh, well, I, yeah, the first time I was, <clears throat> the first time I was in Vietnam, I got a, uh, I got a letter about, uh, uh, two months after I'd been in country 
And uh, the girl I'd been staying with in California was uh, sort of with child. And so I sort of kind of got married over the telephone while I was in Vietnam. How did you get married over the telephone? How did they do that? I got married by proxy. And uh, I had a good friend here in Dallas that set up a marriage. uh, uh, A good friend of mine stood in and, and, uh, and, and I, you know, I... Most of the things that seem real bad in my life, I hated until they, until I figured out that they saved my life. And uh, the first sergeant came out to a special forces camp we were working out of uh, called Bateau and and brought a communicator to take my place in my team uh, and took me back in the main side. And, and then I got married over the telephone. They had a hookup and I said I do over the telephone and a friend of mine said I do for me and so I was married so then the rest of the guys that were in camp and I we uh, tied one on we you know I just I got <laughs> crawl I got knee waddling crawl back to my drunk bed drunk and I you know and when uh, uh, and, and that was just you know I didn't think much of that until the first sergeant came around wake woke us up about 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning. The My platoon and my team, uh, especially, uh, had got overrun uh, by Phantom, by the Phantom North, 524th North Vietnamese Brigade in, at out of Bateau that night. Uh, my platoon, my team got hit. The guy, the communicator took my place, got killed. My best friend got killed, a couple of others. And uh, so we had to go back. We had to leave at first light and go back out on helicopters to recover bodies. And uh, and there I, uh, I carried uh, Stan Joy, who was my best friend, up a hill uh, to a helicopter, and I was waving my fist at God. And, you know, there was God. You know, that, that was my concept of God was somebody that got me and somebody that was going to get me, and he had gotten me again, you know. How could uh, how could there be a a good God that would let a guy like that die and a guy like me live? I did not understand that at all, and uh, so I went. Uh, that war became personal for me for a while, and and I went sort of psychotic. And uh, what do you mean by it became personal? Well, it you know, I got to enjoy what I, I became enthralled with what I was doing. Gotcha. I. Uh, I got too comfortable killing. I uh, uh, did a bunch of things that uh, that I had to carry around and think about later. And and uh, and the only thing that would work to get rid of some of that was uh, when we'd go into main side, when we go back to base camp, and we get to drink a lot. And uh, and so that's what I did. And so uh, we. Uh, uh, we we had one uh, one of our missions was to uh, we would the four of us the our four man team would our job would go would be to go and sneak into an area and not let anybody know we were in that area and then watch and see what was going on in that area and then we'd report over the radios and we'd either call in reaction forces or hunter killer forces or blocking forces or whatever we needed or naval gunfire or fixed wing aircraft we you know when, when we ran into a big enough deal and and uh, uh we uh well we one of the one of the uh one of our patrols uh it was real 
cloudy and real foggy in the mountains uh, in the in the north in northern vietnam it gets real cloudy like that and and a helicopter pilot took us in uh we went in by helicopter early early in the morning and we repel out of the helicopters into the jungle and then we'd go do our thing <clears throat> one helicopter pilot put us two grid squares further north than he should have which put us in the north side of the dmz mm. uh and so we made it through the jungle up a hill uh and then uh, and it was just starting to get light and uh and we kept hearing vietnamese voices all around us and it was north vietnamese uh told by the dialect and and we uh so we all got together in a little bitty bush and i promise you if you're puckered enough you can get together in a little bitty bush and we and we figured out from the, all the voices and people setting up for breakfast around us. I mean, there were people walking by us 20 feet away. Uh, and we got over the over the radio. We finally let them know where we were or about where we were. And uh, so they fired a couple of, of rounds from uh, naval from uh, battleships, and and we uh, we heard the rounds and we tell them about how where they were hitting and. And then they finally figured out where we were, and uh, so they sent in uh, they they used naval gunfire and we used fixed wing aircraft, a couple of flights of Phantoms, and we were in a uh, we were in a North Vietnamese headquarters uh, uh, headquarters unit, and uh, and we saw people and saw patches and all kinds of things, and and they. Finally, after shelling the place and strafing it for an hour and a half, um, they told us a helicopter were on the way in to get us out. So, uh, you know, I'd fired God, uh, you know, a month or so before, but you know, I thought maybe this time just one little prayer might be in order. And, and the four of us put our hands, to, our hands together in a little hole that we dug so we could breathe out of it because napalm was all around and that sucks the oxygen out of the air. And, and uh, we... Uh, put our hands together and we said the most fervent prayer I've ever said in my life. And that's, uh, God, please get one of us out of here so we can kill that damn helicopter pilot. <laughs> and, and that's, and that, uh, you know, uh, God must have thought that was a funny request. And so, you know, they sent, uh, aircraft, they sent helicopters in. There was one little clearing down at the bottom of this little mountain type thing we were on that we had to, uh, make it down to that clearing and and there were the razor grass and the thorns on all the bushes just ripped you to pieces all the way down so you felt yourself get getting torn apart but each one of us felt ourselves get hit by fire three or four times i had two rounds in my radio and a round in my that went through one of my canteens and the handle was blown off my tomahawk and the cover was born off and blown off my head but and other than that, getting torn to pieces by the bushes, there wasn't any, another scratch on me. And the four of us all made it into a helicopter. And uh, on the way down, Roscoe McWilliams from McAdoo, Texas, fired an M79 grenade launcher at a little tower that was over on the corner of, um, one, of this little clearing. And uh, there were two fifty caliber machine guns covering that little uh, clearing. And if he hadn't... if you couldn't make that. You couldn't make that shot again if you tried every day for the rest of your life. It was a one-shot miracle that went right through the window, and 
and uh, took out those 250s and and we all made it to the helicopter the door gunner in the helicopter got hit 57 times uh the whole side of the helicopter got shot to pieces uh as they were getting us out of there uh freeman kester uh team leader uh there was a big brown puddle underneath Roscoe, and we thought it was probably his insides because every one of us had felt ourselves get hit. We didn't know where. And uh, Kester leaned over and licked it with his fingers and said, ah, beanie weenies. <laughs> <laughs> one of the cans in, in Roscoe's pack had been shot uh, as we were getting out. And and, uh, and we all laughed about it, and we all, you know, we, none of us saw the miracle in the deal. Uh, none of us saw... Uh, you know, it, it was, I mean, it was an absolute miracle any of us got out of there. And uh, uh, about two weeks later, uh, we had to, um, we had to go, we were watching a, uh, what we thought was a POW camp. And, and then they had, then we saw some prisoners in there and we called for a strike. And, and then we went in to get prisoners out. And as one of, as we were, and there were some Air Force, there was a couple of Air Force colonels and a general and some other people that had been shot down that were in that camp. And as we were getting them out, uh, another helicopter got shot up that they were in. And we went into the burning helicopter. We got them out. And uh, we just, I mean, we were just doing our job. And, and uh, about the day after we did it all, uh, the four of us on our, our team uh, got orders to go to Washington, D.C., uh, President Johnson wanted to visit us on the White House lawn. Really? And, and uh, there was a uh, there was a poster uh, in 1985. It says the, the the name of the poster was the poster was just titled Pride. It said Pride at the bottom of the poster, and and uh, the uh, it had the four of us that were marines uh, four of us were all in dress blues and and we had a bunch of medals pinned on us by the president in, in the white house lawn and and uh and that was the before picture uh the uh we had a big reception in the white house afterwards uh johnson invited all of the because three of the four of us were from texas so johnson just thought that that was cool that you know it was all the texas boys <laughs> And there were four bars around the corners of this of the ballroom in the in the White House, open bars. Been in the jungle three days before, and they you know and they were sure serving us Chevis Regal on the rocks just as quick as they could pour it. And I just kept making the rounds of the room because I didn't want to spend one time at any one bar. <laughs> and and we got to visit with all the people, and uh, we've been in there about an hour and a half, and. Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps came over to us and said, boys, uh, you know, y'all are getting a little out of hand. He said, before y'all get to be an embarrassment to my Marine Corps, why don't you uh, just make your apologies and go ahead and leave? And we thought that was a good idea because it was getting stuffy, and and uh, and we, we'd had a lot to drink. And uh, <laughs> so we went out on the town. We went out on on dc and went back to marine corps eight and i that night and that's where we'd gone into when we when we got there and uh the after picture the before picture was the pride poster the after picture would where we'd gotten sick on our uniforms we'd lost most of the medals we'd lost our covers we'd you know we'd gotten in fights we'd done i mean we did not look like poster marines when we when we uh 
And the first sergeant came around and got us out of bed. I mean, Sergeant Major came around and got us out of bed the next morning about 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock, and told us to get ready that we were all we all had orders and we were all going home. So <laughs> I uh, then I flew from there back to Dallas. Ah, okay. Let me pause you just a second. We will be continuing our conversation with Bob S. in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at www.soberspeak.com. Also, on that website, you can find the uh, donate button if and only if the spirit moves you to use it. Please keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to in- engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Bob S. All right, so you've had this meeting at the White House with President Johnson. You go out on the town of Washington, D.C., you live it up, to say the least, and now you have, you are out of the Marine? No, you're not. No. But you're just coming back to Dallas. I came back to Dallas. Okay, so what happens in Dallas? I came back. I had a 30-day leave in Dallas, and I thought I was coming back to a, uh, a woman that I'd married over the telephone and a son I'd never seen before. Right. Now, she was in California, though, right? Now, she, my, my parents brought her to to texas okay. that, that part of another story i mean that my parents brought her to texas i was adopted and uh my mother sent her to the same adoption agency in austin the, the home of the holy infancy in austin where i was adopted from uh and i found out a few days later in vietnam that that's where she'd gone so i got a couple of friends of mine from dallas to go down to austin and springer okay so let me make sure i'm understanding so you're saying that your parents took your daughter no oh my parents took got my my now wife yeah and brought her from california to dallas and then my mother took her to the home for the holy infancy uh, an unwed mother's place in in austin gotcha and then so i had i found out that's where she was and i was hacked and i got some of my friends to go down to austin uh spring her from that place bring her back to dallas and get her an apartment so how dallas. do you spring somebody from a place like that do you just three say- real big guys that i played football with two of them stood in the doorway and the other one went to her room and and got the stuff out of the room and, and got her you know <laughs> That's the kind of stuff I did. I was, you know, I was, I was just a little more mature juvenile delinquent. By that time. <laughs> anyway, but when I came back to Dallas, I thought that's who I would see, and uh, went to the Braniff VIP waiting room at, at Love Field, and uh, people aren't going to know what Braniff is. Braniff well, Braniff was a great airline that you know that went defunct uh, back after the Vietnam War, but. Uh, I had a high school band. I had tons of my friends. I had tons of people there to, to see me come in. And uh, everybody but my wife and, and the son had been born. And three of my good friends took me in a room and told me that uh, that she left with her boyfriend, and uh, uh, oh, no. which I didn't know she had. And, and, and so, you know, I sort of went crazy, and I sort of tore up the bar, the room, and I, you know— and I looked for him for about two weeks and uh, 
God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. He didn't let me find them. And uh, so, I, you know, the whole world, they, they wiped out all my savings accounts. They'd, wipe, they'd run up all kinds of debt on my credit cards. Uh, there was only one place I knew where I was, what I was doing. So I went back to Vietnam for a second tour. Really? Oh, yeah. Because you felt comfort there? I knew what I was doing there. And you, okay. All right, so you went back to Vietnam for a second tour. Mm -hmm. How long did that tour last? Well, that tour, I got hit the third time on the, you know, I got the magic out about nine months in, nine and a half months in. You know, I've noticed something here, and I just want to kind of bring this up. You know, there's a lot of people, as you know this, they go to war, and they go to that hellish place, and they don't talk about it even till the day they die. But you were very upfront about the things that happened while you were there. Do you remember when that shift happened? Or oh, why? after I got sober, yeah. It was, uh, I didn't, I, I wouldn't even mention, the, I wouldn't mention the word Vietnam, you know, before that happened. Uh, I kept, I, and, and that's part of why I drank as much as I did. I had bad post-traumatic stress disorder, and and the only thing that would, uh, would anesthetize some of those feelings was just getting wasted. Yeah. Describe to me the post-traumatic stress disorder. What? What did that? How did that manifest itself in your life? Well, not, the the main way was nightmares. Uh, you know, anytime I'd go, to, I was scared to close my eyes because I'd go to sleep and I'd I'd either see faces of, of people that I killed in Vietnam, or uh, I would uh, dream about that wall that they put up in Washington D.C. and and I would see the arms and uh, the faces of the people that I left there and arms coming out, dragging me into that, into that, that wall. Uh, and it was bad survivor guilt. I felt, I felt terrible about, especially about having left my team and gone in and got married over the phone and, and got drunk while they were out there getting killed. And, uh, uh, the, uh, we started a, Force Recon Association when, uh, uh, no, when about about fifteen years after. Well, what kind of association? Force Recon Association. All of the, all of those that, of us that were paramarines or were in that special unit uh, have a, we have an association. To this day, we still have an association. But uh, the first time I went to a, a reunion uh, out in California at uh, mcrd in california they the there were several of the people that were that were there and knew what had gone on and and uh, and i was i was drinking a lot when i went out to that reunion and and uh, they i heard them say i was just sober enough to hear them say well you couldn't have you know you couldn't have done anything to save anybody you were you'd have just been dead like the rest of them and that's the first time it dawned on me that you know Maybe there was a reason, and maybe I would have just been dead if I'd have been there. So maybe there was a reason for me not being there then. How old were you when that happened? Oh, probably 30. Gotcha. So it was still... Oh, yeah. There's, I still had, quite I, a little, quite I still a had at least 11 more years of, of drinking. And uh, uh, I went to uh, went to work uh, in the oil and gas industry uh, doing... Uh, 
first of all, I got a master's degree from North Texas and, and then and then went to work for Phillips Coal Company. Uh, what was the master's degree in? In business. Okay. And uh, it was really in management. But it's, uh, so I went to work for Phillips Coal Company doing coal leasing and running a, a lease crew for uh, in the coal industry. And uh, from that, I went to doing petroleum land work. So I became a petroleum landman. Did you enjoy that work? Pardon? Did you enjoy that work? Oh, I loved it. I mean, it it would let me. <laughs> it would. I moved my family to Lagrange. Uh, I'd gotten remarried after I got out. Of, after I got out of North Lagrange, Texas. Texas. Pardon? Lagrange, Texas. Oh yeah, Lagrange, Texas. Just like the ZZ Top song. Just like the best little whorehouse in Texas song. <laughs> Just like the in fact we had a we had an oil company there. We called the Chicken Ranch Oil Company, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, uh, you know, so I had eighteen landmen and women working for me doing leasing and uh, doing work in in, uh, in Austin down in Austin Chalk. Uh, and uh, I would I would go into Austin two or three days a week, and then go back to Lagrange, and then go back in and go into Houston two or three days a week, uh, and then go back on the weekends. And I usually tried not to drink on the weekends, uh, and I'd drink a whole bunch in Austin and in Houston, and uh, and the weekends. I mean, the week sort of started edging the weekends out, and the days got all confused, and I got. Uh, I got real good at being bad for a while. And, what do you mean by that? Oh, I, uh, they, uh, there was a couple of big oil companies I was working for. I'm sure that I was quite probably quadruple billing them time wise. And, and they both wrote me great big hot checks. And, uh, I didn't think that was real fair. I needed my money and I needed to pay all the other people that work for me. So I, uh, uh, I was in a, a bad mood one day, and I was mowing the yard. I'm sure I was drinking beer or something, and, and uh, uh, so I kept calling these companies in Houston to find out if uh, when they were going to make their checks good. And uh, one little girl at the one company had written me a forty-two thousand dollar hot check. Answered the phone. She said, uh, "Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Shavers. They're in a meeting. They're going to be in our boardroom in a meeting all day, and they're they said to hold all calls. They're not taking any calls." And I said, "That's all I needed." I said, "They're in your boardroom in a meeting, and they're not going to be gone and going anywhere." She said, "No, they're going to be right here." I said, "Okay, thank you very much." I was in Lagrange, Texas, and and part of when when I went to North Texas, when I went back to North Texas. Uh, the ex-marine association we had up there made sure that denton stayed dry and that the little wet towns corral city and lincoln park stayed wet uh, that that's another whole story but uh we were you know we we got i got not only paid in cash for doing that but i also got all the free alcohol i wanted so i had a giant i had a closet as big as this room full of alcohol and uh, uh so it, Purchasing alcohol was never a never, never has been a problem for me, and and so I got uh, I, I, I turned the lawnmower off. I went inside. I I uh, got a quart of Chevys, a brand new quart of Chevys, put it in the front seat of the car. Went out behind the barn. Uh, I had uh, 
I had a little metal canister buried back behind underneath the barn, underneath some tin and some other stuff. And, and, uh, I dug up this metal canister that I'd sent back from Vietnam and I took out my sawed off shotgun. And, uh, uh, so, and I left it where I left everything where I could get to it. And I, I, uh, drove lickety split into Houston and, uh, Walked up the stairs to the soil company, and well, I went up the escalator to the soil company, and and a little I saw a little girl that had talked on the phone, and she stood up, saw me coming. I was wearing a black t-shirt, and and I had a trench coat on over over the shotgun, and a, you know blue jeans, and and I probably looked like a woolly booger, and and she saw me coming, she stood up and started yelling, and you can't go in there, you can't. I just picked her up and I put her back in her seat, and I didn't want to hurt the little girl. And I kicked open the doors to the boardroom, and uh, <laughs> I uh, there were a bunch of guys in suits in there, and I picked out the the CFO that had written me the hot check, and I smiled real big, and they stopped smiling when they saw my shotgun, and and I went over and stuck that shotgun in the guy's mouth, and whoa, and jacked him up against the wall and i said now fellas don't you all think it'd be a good idea to go get me my money <laughs> and they thought that was a real good idea it looked like roadrunners leaving this poor guy they, they they left the room as fast they knocked over chairs and everything getting out of the room and i had the guy up against the wall so i made him sit down and i said now we're just gonna wait for my money and you know it's about 30 minutes later a uh, little guy came up the stairs waving a little white flag and and had a uh, paper bag with my money in it and that's all i went for i didn't go to kill anybody i didn't you know i just wanted my money and, <laughs> and uh, so i went to the door and i looked down between the escalator and and the door and there was the front's little black flag jacket sticking out of the doorways and i thought ah crap swat team and and i knew SWAT i was out team. i knew good. i was out positioned and i knew i was outgunned and i knew i was out man so I just I yelled at them and I said, "Hey, if you guys can't take a joke, come get me." And they did. And uh, I put my shotgun on the ground, and they came and they leg ironed me and handcuffed me and they took me to jail in Houston. Uh, they said that, and it was their people. There were lots of TV cameras and stuff. So I guess it'd been on the on the news in Houston. You know, crazy marine takes takes hostages in downtown Houston and. They took me and uh, they gave me a phone call and I called John Hill. John Hill was a, I'd been the best man at his daughter's wedding and uh, his uh, son-in-law was one of my best friends. And and uh, so I called John uh, and uh, his secretary answered the phone. I said, uh, Betsy, and she said, we've been expecting your call. <laughs> she said, wait just a minute for John. And so she put him on the phone, and, and uh, he said, I, he said, just keep everybody talking. He said, have they booked you in yet? And I said, nope, no, sir, they're still talking to us. And he, she said, he said, uh, well, just keep them talking. I'll be there in a few minutes. So John Hill, the ex-attorney general of Texas, showed up with a federal judge and a state judge. They signed a bunch of papers. They nobody ever even took my picture. I signed my name on something, and and they said they swore that I would be wherever I was supposed to be anytime I had a court date, and they kept my shotgun, and that aggravated me. Man. <laughs> and they didn't. They kept the money for evidence, and I needed oh, that. No. I needed that money, <laughs> and so I, 
I, uh, they let me go and I went back to the car. The car's still in the same place in front of the, in the no parking zone and the, at the oil company. So I drove back to LaGrange. And by the time I got back to LaGrange, I was real mad because they kept my money. And, and, uh, there was a note on my front door and it said it was from my wife and my kids. And they said, uh, deputy so-and-so here tells us that you're a psychopath and that we ought to go back to Tyler, so please don't follow us. Well, I sat down on the front porch, and I had one more drink, I think, and, and I thought, I don't like that deputy anyway. <laughs> oh, no. And so I went back behind the barn again, and I got out a out of the metal canister. This time I got a M3A1 grease gun, a forty-five caliber submachine gun. Uh, I got a couple of Claymore mines. I got a couple of grenades. Uh, grenades? Yeah. I'd sent all this stuff back in a couple of boxes from Vietnam. And anyway, I walked down the street to the old jail on South Main in LaGrange. And there were a couple of squad cars out in front. And I banged on the door with my machine gun. And they didn't come open the door. And I sat out. And I had a new fresh bottle. And I was drinking. And I was yelling at the whoever was listening inside and and uh, they did not open the door i don't know why they didn't stick a couple of shotguns out the door and just blow me away it would have been the easiest but uh so i I stayed there for about 10 minutes which was about 10 minutes too long and i i figured i'd just do something to catch their attention so (laughs) if you ever ever go to the old jail on south main in lagrange texas look for the rolls of 45 caliber submachine gun holes up above the door i sprayed the building down with with a magazine of 45 oh my goodness they still didn't come out and play so i walked back down to my house come out and play i walked walked (laughs) four blocks back down to my house and and i sat on the front porch uh, and I and I had a forty five and and all that other arm of money and then I uh, uh, was looking at the and I, I had two thoughts. Number one was there was we'd had a guy in Vietnam that got a dear John letter and stuck a forty five in his mouth and tried to tried to blow his brains out and at the last second he turned the forty five and all he did was blow his jaw and his ear off. Uh. So I thought I had that forty-five, and I thought, man, I've, I've got to hold this thing straight if I want to do this. Uh, I'd set up Claymore mines out, out on the pecan trees covering the street, so I had the triggers in my lap, and I knew some good guys were going to come down and get me, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to kill any good guys, and and uh, they. Uh, uh, and the second thought was, uh, you can go that thought about you can go to hell for lying and you can go to hell for wasting alcohol and i i could help the lying every now and then and i sure could help the wasting alcohol because if i'd left that bottle of chevis half a bottle or whatever it was uh cops were either gonna get it or they were gonna pour it out and that was wasting and and uh, so i decided i'd just finish killing that bottle first and I never passed out, and and this time I uh, I passed out, and I I remember going over backwards in a rocking chair, uh, looking at the ceiling fans on my porch, and uh, uh, just I was you know I was just crocked. I was I was passed out. When I came to, I uh, was wrapped up and chained up, and in one of those long sleeve sports coats that they use. 
getting stood when they had two shotgun guards standing over me in the LaGrange jail. And, uh, uh, they were, they'd called the Texas Rangers and, uh, the Rangers were on the way from Austin to pick me up in LaGrange. And, uh, this time they ran the computers. They didn't run the computers in Houston, uh, because of the people I had there, I guess. But this time they ran the computers and they, they found, uh, they found 28 felony charges on me for the last, that, that I'd gathered in the last six months, uh, checks assaults uh, uh one of the little places that owed me a lot of money the little pipe yard blew up and they found a bunch of explosives in my barn and they thought i might have had something to do with it uh and well yeah they they had me they had me uh and they and the texas rangers took me to austin okay so here's the deal we have not even got sober with you yet. <laughs> and I've been so interested in the stories that I didn't want to stop you, okay? So what we're going to have to do is bring you back in for another episode. Would that be okay with sure. you, Bob? Sure. Absolutely. And we can kind of come up to the point of you getting sober and then getting into the steps and your experience within Alcoholics Anonymous. Obviously, you are chock full of stories, and I absolutely love it, okay? So what I usually do here is I'm going to go ahead and read page 164 of the big book to close this out, and then we'll get you back some other time. Good. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Mr. Bob, thank you so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, once again, let's hear from Mr. Bob S. That is me giving a round of applause in the background. And Bob S. absolutely loves spending time with you. For the listeners out there, as a reminder, we will be bringing Bob S. Part 2 to you next week. And you do not want to miss that one. Uh, what you heard today was just the tip of the iceberg from him. He is quite a gentleman there. All right, so... Uh, the first part of listener feedback today is a voicemail from Miss Erin. Hi, John. This is Erin. I'm 66 days sober today, and I feel like you're holding my hand all the way. Thank you so much for your podcast. I really get a lot of information out of them. Still go to meetings, too, but they first sure fit in the in-between. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Miss Aaron, and I really love the way that you phrase that. I feel like you're holding my hand. Well, I tell you what, I think we're all virtually holding each other's hands, uh, at least on the podcast. Sometimes it's in person when you're in a meeting, but I'm glad you're attending meetings. Sounds like you're doing all the right thing. And once again, congratulations on your sobriety, and thanks for leaving us a voicemail. By the way, if any of you would like to leave a voicemail out there, just pause your device, whatever sort of device you're on. Go to the show notes or episode notes, as they're known as sometime. Look for the link in the show notes that says, uh, it'll say a combination of both sober speak and speak 
pipe. You uh, click on that uh, link and you can leave a message and it gives you up to 90 seconds and you can actually start over, stop, start, whatever you want to do. It won't take it until you are absolutely ready. All right. So anyway, thanks again for uh, um, giving us that feedback, Miss Aaron. All right. Greg writes in and he says, John, I found your podcast a week ago or so and I love it. I am 38 days sober. Congratulations, Greg. I would like to be part of the secret Facebook group. Thanks for your time and effort in producing the show. I enjoy listening on my commute and when I'm out jogging, jogging, I just said jogging. Anyway, I attend a couple of meetings a week and I love hearing the inspiring stories on the days in between from your podcast. Email is such and such. I am a, I am Greg G. Well, thank you, Greg G. Congratulations on your sobriety again. I'm glad you made it in the secret Facebook group. By the way, if there's anybody who wants to join that secret Facebook group, send me an email at john, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com and just give me your email associated with your Facebook account. All right, Kath P writes in from down under, and she says, Hey, John, nice to meet you. My name is Kath. I'm an alcoholic, and I've been sober this time for just three weeks. I've been drinking on and off for over 20 years. I'm 47, originally from England, but now live in Sydney, Australia. I have attempted stopping by myself many, many times and once managed two years but fell off the wagon again. I have had a turning point by joining AA, which is an absolute lifeline for me. The the support I have received is incredible. Your podcast was mentioned at my meeting last night, so I checked you out. I have been listening to my 50 minute I have been listening on my 50 minute drive to and from work and I have and I have to say I am hooked. I love the meeting between meetings. It's good to have the speakers to listen to when I can't get to a meeting. So much resonates with me and my life. Anyway, I just wanted to say thank you and may I Join your secret Facebook group. Thank you again, and kind regards, Kath P. Well, of course you can join our secret Facebook group, secret Facebook group, Miss Kath P. Not a problem. We got her in there. Thanks for writing in. From down under, Donna writes in. She says, I live in Douglasville, Pennsylvania. I am just starting on my journey. I have been working toward my goal now for a, towards my goal for about a year now. My doctor suggested I start attending AA meetings. I have started doing so on Sunday morning. Now, Sober Speak and Sobercast have become my companion podcast on my commute to and fro work. I added the to and fro. Anyway, she says, thanks for all you do. Many thanks, Donna. Well, congratulations, Donna. And thank you for writing in. I appreciate it. Jenny writes in, Jenny, Jenny, who can I turn to? You know that song they had a long time ago, Jenny, Jenny, eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine. Anyway, I bet Jenny got that all the time. I'm just thinking. Anyway, and if you don't know a song that is, forgive me for bringing it up. Even if you do know a song that is, forgive me for bringing it up. Nonetheless, she says, hi, John. Thank you. I currently live in Denver, the mile high city with my husband and daughter. 
Rummy, who is seven. I'm assuming that's Rummy, R-U-M-I. My sobriety date is two, excuse me, 10-20-2014. I got sober in Wisconsin, the land of cheddar cheese. I added the cheddar cheese part. But anyway, I love, I absolutely love this program. And what I love most is the fellowship and the spiritual growth that I continually get to have. This program saved my life my marriage, and the ability to be a mom today. I think I heard about sober spook, sober speak from the Facebook thread when someone asked about a good podcast to listen to about sobriety. I listened in the car on my commutes, and it gives me what I need to hear in meeting in my meetings between meetings. Thank you so much for your service to this community. Love, Jenny. Well, love back at you, Miss Jenny. And I love this community, as you can tell. And it is my honor and my privilege. Scott C. writes in. And Scott says, hello, John, just discovered your podcast. I'm seven and a half months sober, and I really appreciate hearing the great AA people you have on. Please add me to the to the Facebook group. Well, we got that invite out to Mr. Facebook, to Mr. Facebook, to Mr. Scott C. And uh, if you're not in there yet, Scott, let me know, but I'm sure you are. Justin writes in and he says, John, thank you for taking the time to create this wonderful podcast. Thank you, John. Justin, I thoroughly enjoy listening to your speaker guest as well as your <laughs> less than perfect accents. <laughs> Be big smiley face. Well, <laughs> well, thank you. I, I'm glad someone appreciates that, Mr. Justin. I just finished your Cresta Butte review. I have always wanted to travel out west, and that would be a great reason to make my first trip out that way. My wife is on board and she is excited in the changes she has seen as me, seen in me as I work the steps. I am 81 days gratefully sober. Well, best to you and your wife, Mr. Justin. Uh, Keep up the good work and don't stop trying (laughs) to nail those accents. (laughs) Exclamation point, Justin. Well, I think the operative word in there is trying. As anybody who who has listened to this for a while, you know I'm not perfect at the accents, but uh, I I do just give it a a shot every once in a while. All right. Oh, now I'm sorry. I have a follow-up email from Donna, and I should have read this a moment ago. And she said, thank you, John. I joined a group last night. Oh, that's great. I was looking for a blog on adult ADD when I found you, and I thought there may be something for alcoholics. Lo and behold, I found Sober Speak and Sobercast. I even told my doctor about them so she can share them with her other patients. Oh, that's great. Uh, I enjoyed listening to you and Maria talking about Crested Butte. Thanks, Donna. So, so we've had a couple things here so far. Uh, Donna is talking to her doctor about the podcast, and I know that the podcast, it seems, was mentioned uh, from a listener earlier in some groups in Australia, and I'm so happy for that. Like I said, I hope we can be a small part of people's uh, sobriety, and I hope we can add a little meeting in meaning in between meetings. Dawn! Writes in D A W N Dawn. Dawn says, I live in Colorado, but I am originally 
from North Carolina. I'm seriously struggling with my recovery and staying sober. I'm 35 and I've been trying to recover for 11 days after an episode where I blacked out, got behind the wheel, but by the grace of God, made it to my destination and back safely, only hitting the garage door and relapsed two times since. Oh man. I've been there, Don. I know. I'm trying to fight the cravings, but they're killing me. I have anxiety, manic depression, bipolar disorder, and borderline personality disorder, disorder, as well as ADHD, and alcohol is the only thing that curbs my debilitating anxiety. Unfortunately, picked up smoking again after I quit June 8th of 2018 after 15 years of smoking on and off. I found Sober Speak from my sponsor who sent me some podcasts to listen to, Don. Well, Don, sweetheart, just hang in there. Uh, you know, uh, I've been there. I've been, I was in and out of the program for three years, and I know many, many people listening to this can just, can relate to your situation. Just keep getting back up on that horse and riding it, uh, and do keep me posted. All right. So somebody writes in from Canada and it's G H I S L A I N Gislaine. I'm going to call that Gislaine. Writes in from Canada. A. Hello, John. I'm from Timmins, Ontario, Canada. At the beginning, at the New Beginnings Group. I enjoy your podcast very much as I'm driving my bus down the highway. Please accept me in your Facebook group. Thank you. Namaste. So you're driving a bus down the highway listening to Sober Speak, and I absolutely love it. I'm so glad you're doing this. Now, I, I do got to admit, I'm thinking, now, is that a school bus? Is that a uh, like a city bus? Is that just like a little bus you have? Is it a bus full of folks? I, I don't know. But anyway, I'm glad you're driving a bus and listening to us, and namaste right back at you. Another Donna from Down Under again. Donna writes in from down under from, from, from Australia. I'm sorry I get excited when people write in from Australia. I don't know why. But she says, the title of this email is A Positive Experience for This Alcoholic. And then she calls me Danger John. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Have I introduced myself that way? Or just maybe that's a, a reference to something in pop culture? I do not know. But anyway, she says, Danger John. This is a long feedback email. So you, cannot, you don't have to read it on air. Well, guess what? Donna. I'm going to write, I'm going to read it. And it says, good day, John. That's literally what it says. Good day, John. I wrote you a few weeks ago asking you to add me to your Facebook group while reading my email out loud on episode number 98. Wait a second. I don't think that's possible. I don't have a 98 yet. I'm not even there yet. Anyway, I'm sure it's in the 90s or who knows in the 80s. Maybe it's 89. Nonetheless, you mentioned your curiosity with... (laughs) Our toilets flushing the opposite whale way in Australia. Yes, I did mention that. She said, I had never heard of this. However, apparently it is a very popular question. And the Google says that it's just a myth, John. Wow. Well, uh, I'll have to look that up. 
Actually, I probably don't care. I probably won't. But anyway, uh, it is a, a, an interesting question. And just in case you missed it from a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was, I mentioned that my understanding is that when the water goes down the drain, like in a toilet or whatever in Australia versus America, that it actually goes the opposite way. And I think it has something to do with the equator. But nonetheless, she says to introduce myself again, John, I'm Donna. I'm a sober alcoholic from Melbourne, Australia. As I said, when you read my last email, my home group is a mouthful, or as my regular members know it as, Roxy Daily Reflections. My sobriety date is American Style 12-23-2013. Last time, uh, I think she said something like, whatever it is in European and all these other countries, the rest of the world, uh, she says something like 23-12-2013, something like that. But anyway, that's... Five years, eight months of days all in a row, big smiley face. John, what a blessing Sober Speak has been for me. Big namaste hands. Oh, yes, now I remember you. You're the person that has all these emojis, like emojis out the wazoo, and, and I love them. She says, you and your speakers have helped me see that I have been playing the victim since my little sister's passing. Oh, six months ago, a little broken heart emoji. I'm sorry to hear that, Donna. I've realized that by listening to Sober Speak that I have been sitting in self-pity. Your guest speakers have reminded me to get back on my program and use the tools that I have learned in the past five years. In March, my family had to endure the heartache of saying goodbye to my sister, and that was 15 months after we said goodbye to her dad. Oh, a broken heart emoji. Man, I'm sorry about that. I had been working my regular program, but slowly, but slowly I began to feel sorry for myself and my family and getting angry at the world, exclamation point. During this time, I was doing my regular 45 meetings a week. I was doing my regular morning read, readings, guided meditations and prayers. What I didn't see was that I had stopped doing my gratitude list each day. I wasn't talking to the longer sober members, and I don't believe I was working the 12 steps in my everyday life. I hadn't thought of drinking, but I was becoming more angry, negative, and sad, and that's a dangerous place for an alcoholic to be in. Couldn't agree more. About a month ago, I heard a newcomer share from the floor about a podcast she listens to. I asked about it, and here I am, just a month later, feeling better and less angry. Well, apparently, uh, people talk about this podcast a lot in Australia, and I'm so glad, actually in meetings. Anyway, namaste, hand she put. I've listened to about 40-ish episodes, all fantastic in their own right, without... AA, my HP, the 12 steps, and now you guys at Sober Speak, this alcoholic would be in a world of drama, self pity, and sadness. I am happy to report I've been put in the I've been put in action to deal with the pain in my heart and have already had an appointment with my psychologist. Clapping hands. Emoji. Thanks to Sober Speak guests, I am constantly reminding myself to keep my head where my hands are. I am trying to think the opposite of what my head is thinking. I've heard a lot of people try that, and I don't blame you. Um, 
And I've started to make calls to my older, older sober members, which for me, calling members for help has been the hardest part of my journey thus far. But quote, not unquote, listening to my negative thoughts. I made six, six, John calls on Thursday. That's great. (laughs) And I finally am back to walking with a clear head again. To finish off my very long feedback, John, I just want to thank you for bringing us Sober Speak. Oh, oh, you make my day here. And thank you to the guest speakers without hearing their experience, strength, and hope of living a sober life successfully. I wouldn't see the proof that is this thing that really works I wouldn't see the proof that this thing really works. And all I have to do is put in the action and have the willingness to look at myself honestly and change it. Wow, she says, what a gift coming up. Alcohol has given this garden variety alcoholic. I cannot thank you all. And she's talking about, I'm sure, all the guests we've had on here. Enough for helping me out of self and finding my self-awareness, exclamation point. God bless everyone. Aussie Donna, not Dorina John. (laughs) Laugh out loud. This morning at 7 a.m., my morning walk. Uh, Oh, she sent me uh, several pictures uh, where she was out on her 7 a.m. morning walk. Uh, 45 minutes north of of Melbourne, and she says, I feel closest to my HP while walking, Uh, and they were beautiful pictures. And she says, this is her gratitude list. Grateful to be breathing. Grateful for my faith. (laughs) Grateful to Bill and Bob for AA. Grateful for my health. Grateful to have a job. Grateful to have a roof over my head. Grateful to have good friends. Grateful to be happily sober, new life, loving it. Big smiley face. Well, thank you so much, Donna, for writing in. God bless you. And everyone out there, once again, keep coming back. It works if you work it, folks. God bless you. I'll probably see you next week.